You are listening to Mediation Station. This is your host, Greg Fenton. Each week we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. We are available to connect with at greggf at primus.ca and 647-227-4734. Visit us at our Facebook page to like us and Facebook group page to become a member. Also visit YouTube channels for both CHHA 1610AM and Greg Fenton. Listen to podcasts of each radio show by visiting either of SoundCloud.com or iTunes podcasts under Mediation Station in the Arts Area. Please follow us at our Twitter account, which is at Fenton Mediation. Our topic tonight is called Bringing Light to Black Mental Health Matters with our two visitors, Alethea Cador and Kimberly Cato. So I want to engage in our two visitors, and I have Alethea and I have Kimberly. And I want to say thank you for both contributing tonight to the conversation. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. Hi, Kimberly. Are you there, too? I am here. Thank oh. you very much for having us here. Okay. So we're going to talk about bringing the light, bringing light on black mental health matters. And I want to start off in the sense to ask each of you to share some information about your professional background, starting with you, Alethea. Sure. Um, well, I'm a registered psychotherapist, and I received my license in 2017. Uh, currently, uh, my background has always been in adolescent mental health and psychiatry and community support. And what I mean by community support, uh, extensive experience working in the community, uh, doing mobile crisis, going out to calls from families that are having difficulties in their home, um, to doing telephone support and also working in uh, uh, adolescent uh, psychiatry, uh, work supporting students who need stabilization and they uh, are currently working in, in education and rebuilding their lives. And I've also conducted assessments in psychiatry with students and people coming through the eMERGE needing stabilization due to mental health issues and um, consulting with them to come up with a recovery plan that works for them. Okay. And Kimberly? Um, well, I too am a registered psychotherapist. Um, I've been in private practice at, um, I've been in private practice since uh, 1996 was when uh, my agency just opened and I've done a number of things and worked with a number of different clientele, um, pri primarily working with people who are in a state of crisis and um, whether it be um, through child protection agencies or um, mental health and addictions agencies and even don my hat as a um, chaplain for a number of years working with people who were infected and affected by HIV AIDS. Um, and so that's kind of the, um, the gamut of, of, of work that I've done in, in the field of psychotherapy. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
And Greg, I think you know how we connected. How did we um, connect? You tell us. <laughs> uh, well, it was so long ago when you were telling me the dates. I thought, well, it's been that long. But um, I was a student that uh, was interested in working in youth criminal justice at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think it was like 2004, 2005, something around there. Yeah. Maybe even earlier. And I came across um, an ad that really struck out to me, and it was about mediation and restorative justice. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was working in a youth uh, facility, and um, they were looking at having mediation mm -hmm. and restorative justice as an alternative to um, having sentencing. Yeah, the traditional dispute. approaches. Yes. Yeah. And I thought, you know, wouldn't that be interesting to learn an indigenous principle that could be applied to working with youth so that they would learn a little bit more about harm and intent and how we can resolve our um, conflicts through. And, an, and especially an in a non-judgmental environment. Absolutely. And I felt that those skills really helped build on some of the things that I'm doing today, especially working with young people who mm -hmm. sometimes feel like their voice isn't heard. And then on top of that, yeah. being someone um, of color, a black person that also has another layer of complex issues that go along with um, some of the struggles and challenges that they're facing today. Yeah, you were a volunteer with the Restorative Justice Program. Absolutely. With Conflict Mediation Services of Downsview, yes. CMSD for short. <laughs> and I was a dual person. I was managing the community program, what was called at that time. It later transitioned to be called the Community Transformation Program. And I was also the organizational volunteer coordinator. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, I connected with you for the first time and, you know, there's been a journey, of course, that's mm -hmm. provided for why you're here now. Absolutely. And why you're doing what you're doing. In, a, in another way, Kimberly has also followed a path or created a path mm -hmm. to where she's at now. Can you guys unpack that a little bit? Like, what did you do with the uh, processes of learning, the training that you had from CMSD? And how, how might have that contribute to where you're at now? Um, Kimberly, did you want to go first or...? Well, that was for oh, you. Okay, that was for me. Okay, all right. Because it's more related <laughs> to, to the... That, okay, well, I think it's also been a, a, a... I call it a scaffolding, which is a building of a, a, a specific set of skills that will lead you to um, reaching a goal or a target uh, of, of success. And what I mean by that, it's kind of like a broader sense, but I felt like every um, interaction, every job that I had, every person that I met all had a key yeah. um, component that led They each me contributed to, build, to yeah. building upon. Building upon mm -hmm. everything that I learned, and I made sure that I kept my connections. Right. And I felt through the networking in somehow, some way, when I kept these connections, that it would lead me to when I was ready to launch out or, or um, you know, do some networking, that I would have some people that I could reach out to. And I noticed because of the crisis... Um, there's been a lot of connecting and networking and uh, a, just a different way of doing things and relating to people. So I thought, you know what, um, the time is now to make, you know, to take those opportunities and, again, build on some of the experience that I have and just see where it leads. And it's been very successful. Mm -hmm. And you, Kimberly, how, how have you created the path 
for where you're at now. Excuse me. I um, I would love to say that I was very strategic, um, but that's just not my truth. Um, I, I almost accidentally happened upon um, one area of interest into another, and um, I, I, when I look at my career path, I'm driven by um, I'm driven by need. I'm driven by need and people who are marginalized. And so um, I remember I started out working with with youth um, who were just in crisis. And at that that time, uh, we referred to these youth um, as, as, you know, they were more problem children and they had different sort of um, backgrounds, but once I started working with them, I found that I had a knack um, in reaching them at the point of of, of where they were and being able to guide and direct them to a point that would cause success. And then in the process of doing that, um, I was drawn into different areas of, of um, need by people, and and that sort of landed me into uh, working with adults who, well, I started working with children who were um, sexually offended, um, and then I started working with the adults who sexually sexually offended, um, just to try to get an understanding of what was in the mind and the thoughts of, of these individuals, and then um, that led me to working with um, adults in general, and tapping into the child that was broken within them, um, which then, of course, um, led me to to working with people who were just in crisis, generally speaking, and focusing really on trauma um, mm-hmm. and understanding trauma as the pivotal piece. Um, and so... When I was then called into chaplaincy and working with people who were HIV um, positive, uh, it was the same thing. It was the trauma of that diagnosis and what life would then be as a result of that. And um, and then that pivoted me into working um, specifically with, with people of color who have had... Uh, difficulty unpacking their trauma experience and really getting a handle on what behaviors they are manifesting today and how they were impacted by the experiences of um, trauma that they've endured. And, And that kind of brings me to where I am now because now I'm, I'm really focused on trauma and, and understanding how to transform trauma and um, transform trauma, the trauma experience so that we can actually um, endure or benefit from a triumphant life. And so that's really where my, um, my focus is now in just that transformative um, that trauma transformation yeah. and that um, victory at the end of the day. Could you give just for the benefit of the listener 
a little contextual understanding of trauma? <laughs> um, I, I, I know it's a I, lot, and I, I'm just trying to see if there's a some way to have a succinct point here. Um, I understand trauma to be a, a life-altering experience on the most simplistic um, note of trauma. It's a life-altering experience. And so it's not just one experience necessarily. It can be an accumulation of experiences that leave an, an individual um, negatively impacted mm -hmm. by a series of, of experiences, or it can be a singular experience. Um, but when you're talking specifically about black people or people of color, mm -hmm. we come to the table already traumatized. So we're born into trauma because of the generational impact um, of the tra tra traumatic experience. And so oftentimes it's difficult to unpack and, and look at a singular experience because they're, particularly when you're talking about um, the black experience, it's not a singular experience. And I really um, want really us to go there and open mm -hmm. that up to help better inform others mm -hmm. in the community as well as people within the community about what we're talking about. How are the two of you connected in any way? <laughs> Um, I've been a fan of Kimberly's for quite some time. Actually, I remember when she was building her business and I had reached out to her. Um, and I think it was also something, um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, with the roots of violence. But I remember reaching out to you because of the work that you were doing and just uh, you informing me that you know, you're doing or thinking about going into private practice and that you would just keep in contact with me. And I had reached out to you uh, to request some supervision, uh, which I'm still in the process of organizing uh, to finalize my certificate in dialectical behavior therapy, which is part of doing some trauma-informed work. And uh, I'm currently implementing those structures um, in the work that I'm doing in, with my individual work. And I felt in order to, um, you know, solidify my practice, I needed to reach out to someone in the community that's already doing the work. And I reached out to Kimberly and she had accepted to support me. And through that and some networking, um, I noticed that there's some other people that Kimberly is connected to that is doing some really um, good work in the community. So hopefully from there we can expand that network and do some uh, really good work for our community. Any thoughts from you with regard to that, Kimberly? I, I, I agree. <laughs> we, this is exactly how we connected. And, and there are a number of people with whom um, we share mm -hmm. um, connection. And uh, it has always been a desire of my heart to um, work with people who are coming up into um, psychotherapy and in, into um, the practice of the things that we do and and, um, and really psychotherapy can tend to be a very solitary practice particularly if you're doing it a private practice 
And so I always seek opportunities to connect with people who are um, who are doing this work. Um, I think it's I think it's fundamental in in terms of keeping yourself um, aware of what's up and coming and new within the field and not being pigeonholed mm-hmm. in into your own um, way of doing things or way of thinking. Um, and then it, it, it also en- enables you and empowers you to to um, share some of your experiences and, and your knowledge and so that you can um, continually sort of enrich the individual's experience when they come and, and receive support. Mm-hmm. When you learn about other people's, oh, you're doing that? Wow, that's yeah. interesting. That's mm-hmm. cool. Hmm, how do you do that? Maybe I could try to do that somehow. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it broadens your horizons for sure. Well, I mean, it it also challenges our, our own perspective of our realities mm-hmm. because we do whatever we do, and then we might get into this mindset that we're living in this world of doing what we do, and that's all we need to do. And mm-hmm. I, I'm a person that likes to keep challenged and get challenging and be critical, reflective. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if, you know, if there's things that I could do differently Mm -hmm. and quote better, exactly. I, I'm totally, that's my path. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what, what are the things that each of you values as to in a relationship when you're just going out there? Because I've heard the two of you talk about relationships. Mm -hmm. Kimberly first. Um, honesty, (laughs) honesty. I always, I value honesty above, um, any, everything else. My, my company itself is, is called True Roots. I'm really about truth. So in a relationship, I, I'm always, um, reliant on truth telling. Um, and then also, um, just a sense, I've been in situations in which um, people are at, not necessarily that they're at different levels, but they are um, practicing differently. And I like being sort of, I like being open-minded and, and being um, uh, welcoming or open to different thinking and different practices and and differences and so in a relationship I, I i need inclusion i need respect and i need honesty mm-hmm. yeah um similar uh sentiments there um just to go back to something that you had discussed prior kimberly about trauma-based work and trauma-informed work um we have to also realize that when we're building those relationships we're meeting people where they're at and we also have to acknowledge that those functional limitations that might have been a barrier for them um, doesn't really hold them or prevent them from you know uh, achieving success it's just that uh, we're kind of reprogramming the brain because trauma Mm -hmm. does affect people uh, neurologically and physiologically and Mm -hmm. it does manifest itself in a behavior 
whether it's a positive behavior or a negative behavior. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that needs to be identified and those cognitions are worked through. So mm -hmm. for me, um, it, it's keeping that in mind and knowing that uh, although developmentally we might be expecting, because I'm working a lot with young people right now, mm -hmm. uh, we might be expecting a certain outcome and uh, we might not, um, or it might take a process to get there. Um, and mm -hmm. what their wellness and recovery looks like because mm -hmm. you're also acknowledging and understanding those functional limitations and how it could a impact on their daily functioning. Well, mm -hmm. to ask, though, when you say expectations or limitations, is that based on your own view or is that based on what's been sort of expressed or you've gathered from the person with whom you're trying to work and assist? Mm -hmm. Because... There's a lot of ways that we as professionals can mm -hmm. impose our own point of view on others. Right. And mm -hmm. sometimes they're very judgmental. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's not the reality of the person who's living the experience. And I think I'm hearing from you, mm -hmm. Alethea, that it's about adapting in terms of working with people what will work for them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I find it's more individual and what we say um, person-centered then mm -hmm. instead of somebody imposing something that we think based on a, li a checklist. Well, the, the system of, says, okay, when it's system-focused, yeah. yeah. you got to fit what the system says. Mm -hmm. Rather, when it's client-centric, it's focused for what's you know, going to work best for the client in their Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They have more autonomy in the decision-making of what they want to incorporate and what things don't work for them instead of someone just saying to you, okay, well, this is a plan, and I want you to follow the plan. Um, which is something more generic, and people might be looking for a little bit more. Yeah, and that could be so challenging mm -hmm. for yeah. people because uh, yeah. I, I, that's a barrier, mm -hmm. possibly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. For, from the medical perspective, right, because you know, sometimes we're operating from a medical model. It is prescription-based. Mm -hmm. But now the perspective, when I'm looking at uh, psychiatry, um, you know, there's so many individuals that are looking at things and practicing from a holistic approach and mm -hmm. looking at different treatment interventions. And, um, you know, then they're incorporating different professionals to carry on that work. And um, I just like that route because I find there's the creativity, the flexibility there. And, you know, some of us are more art-based instead of like one-on-one. -on -one. So you're using different types of skills. Well, what I'm hearing from you too is you're going back to your roots at CMSD with yeah. the circle process, Absolutely. the holistic. Yeah. You know, it's like coming to work and assist people not from one dimension only mm -hmm. it's and a multitude of absolutely and i found yeah. that when i started you know incorporating that perspective i'm telling you things just changed for me mm -hmm. um i'm just finding that uh, my the people that i'm coming into contact with that i'm doing the work with um you know they're 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 opening up they're um looking more hopeful and mm. they're really motivated to do the work Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a big change. I find that transformative for, for me, um, mm -hmm. just being in the field for, for the length of time that I have and seeing the way we practice. Um, yeah, I would say that it is very transformative, and mm -hmm. I think people are expanding now. And, and my, my world of transformative has actually evolved from that. Oh, it's a word transformational. Mm -hmm. So for yeah. me, that's an active, ongoing, more fluid yes. process. Mm -hmm. It's not yeah. transformative to me is this is what it was at this moment. Mm -hmm. Transformational yeah. 
is a continuum of change. And so my world, I see myself as a transformational relational person, the changing nature of the world in relation to people and relationships, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, I find like right now, just with the conversation, I mean, it just seems to be more harmonious and, you know, we're all uh, looking to achieve the same thing. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just different avenues of doing it. And I think that's the power of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how would you, uh, Kimberly, define mental health? Those two words when they're together. <laughs> how would I define mental health? Yes. Um, hmm. Well, the way I would define mental health or being mentally healthy is being um, aware of our um, limitations um, and being aware of our strengths. In so, um, and as a result, being able to um, find the resources that you need to um, manifest better in the places in which you are weak, and um, then also being able to um, fully exercise the places in which you are strong and and manifest your strength to the fullest of your ability. And, And so when an individual is mentally healthy, they are um, fully able to um, to engage in life, in um, interaction with other people, and to get their needs met, but also to feed um, others around them within their sphere of influence, to um, to do the very best uh, version, be the very best version of themselves, and. Um, and so where there is lack, you are then fortified, and where there is abundance, then you, from that place, pour out. Um, so that's how I see an individual who's mentally healthy, um, and that's really what I think about when I think about um, mental health. Okay. What's your, what do you want to say, Alicia? Um, well, I just wanted to add and expand a little bit of what Kimberly was saying. Um, also, uh, for mental health, my definition would be this, similar in terms of being able to make uh, appropriate decisions that are uh, developmentally appropriate and uh, lead to that person becoming autonomous and independent to live um, you know, a, a healthy and well-balanced life. Um, and again, I'm taking it from that holistic approach because I believe that, you know, one does work, doesn't really work without the other, the wellness, the food, the environment, what you're reading, who you're interacting with. And, um, I find for young people, I mean, we throw out a lot of words like Gen Xers and Generation Z and millennials. And I find Mm -hmm. that there's a certain set of expectations that comes with those mm-hmm. definitions. And I'm wondering, and I'm, I'm listening to people out there saying that, you know, those things don't really define me. 
And, you know, when we're putting people in those confines, I find that that's where the stress is. Well, I mean, the reality is everybody within, quote, that definition or category, Mm -hmm. are they living the same experience? Are they feeling the same things as per the lived experiences they're going through? Mm, Absolutely not. But when you're looking at the media and what's um, attracting people these days it seems like it's one mm-hmm. homogeneous group that everybody's out on on their spring break, you know, not breaking rules and, you know, doing their own thing, you know. So that's the thing that kind of concerns me when I'm working with young adults and young people. Like, are we really subscribing to what society is dictating or is this what who we really are? As the individual. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then all the anxiety and the depression and mm-hmm. the family intergeneral generational issues that that play on top of that and again being a person of color so um it's so multifaceted and so multi-layered um but then the reality is you know like what like how do we how do we become true to ourselves and what does that Mm -hmm. look like and what are those examples that are out there that really give you a solid foundation so so from each of your perspectives what is the black experience with mental health Kimberly or Letha, whoever wants to navigate this first. <laughs> Kimberly, <laughs> um, put you on the spot. What is the black experience with mental health? Bl- y- yes, it's, that's always po- that's always um, been a very interesting question to mm-hmm. me. Um, because, to be honest, the black experience with mental health is really. Um, impacted by the history of um, our the black experience through trauma mm-hmm. and and insofar as you understand an individual's journey through trauma generally speaking and and if you understand that journey and then you attach to that within the black experience the notion that we've never really been told that or we've never really been given permission to be anything other than strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you are broken or if you are um, damaged by an experience, the the resounding um, cry is to be strong or to pray or to essentially get over it. We've passed it. Just keep going. Mm-hmm. And, and so there, m- the mental health experience within the black community is really about denial. It's really about mm-hmm. denying what you feel and the impact of a situation around you and just pressing on and accomplishing whatever you need to. To, just um, to, to, to understand because the expectation is that, quote, you have to be strong? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. At all costs. So At you, all costs. you can't show your vulnerabilities? Never. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, you cannot. You cannot. You cannot. You cannot show it. And almost you can't you can't even feel it. So once if you raise it, if you bring up, you know, this isn't okay for me, or I don't like that, or I'm I'm uncomfortable, or 
if you bring that up, you, you're immediately told to tone it down, to ignore it, to get beyond it. Um, and then resources and support and these sort of things were, were not really granted to um, the, the black, the individual um, who, who's experienced something um, and is trying to articulate what they're experiencing um, and receive, there, there just isn't, there wasn't an avenue to receive support in those um, sorts of environments. Mm-hmm. Um, so people were really left to figure things out on their own and, um, and then even develop the language for what they were feeling and um, what they were going through on their own. Um, and so the black mental health experience is, is really a, a battle that begins with defining what exactly is mental health for the black individual. What is, what is the thing that people talk about in other cultures that we're not permitted to discuss in our own? Mm-hmm. When you say permitted, is that an internal or an external or a combination of the two? Like who it's gives a combination? Who gives you permission? I mean, the expectation is what the broader society imposes this traditionally. It's almost like, for example, yeah. if you have a boy and a girl, it, regardless of culture or skin color, a boy is raised to be, um, you know, to, to not cry, to be strong, um, and you see repercussions of that. In adults, they they tend not to be very connected to their emotional side, um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm speaking broadly, not specifically, but broadly, um, and and the same is the case within the black culture, um, because you come from parents who are they don't they don't have the time to stop and and take care of you know, an issue or concern within the family, and they don't themselves have that language. Um, and, and so then the broader, the broader community, cultures outside of your home and outside of the black community, they don't give that language or that permission either. And so, yeah, it's, it's both in both places, whether within the culture and without the culture, the language and the experience is not um, acknowledged, and you certainly don't have permission mm-hmm. to to be anything other than strong. Absolutely. Um, I just even want to go a little bit back before mm-hmm. we move forward, and I always look at migration and immigration mm-hmm. and how we came here. Yeah. And I think a lot of us came here by choice, and some of us were forced. And if we're looking at the history of African people um, coming to this country, the first person that came to this country was a seven-year-old child mm-hmm. by the name of Matthew da Costa. Wait, is it Matthew da Costa? Or okay, I might be getting it wrong his name, <laughs> but um, I, I'll, I'll just research that. But um, and I and I always say to myself, like, why would someone want to have a seven-year-old child cooking and cleaning, and um, you know, assisting them on their navigation to the new world? 
And I find that black children are always seem to be looked at mm -hmm. as older adults. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the way that we're developmentally raised, um, mm -hmm. when you're coming from the Caribbean and you're coming from um, the rural areas of, and not being, you know, in, in the city, urban lifestyle, you know, mm -hmm. children as young as, you know, eight, nine, they're cooking and cleaning, they're taking yeah. care of the home, they're going to school. In some countries, you have to pay to go to school. And mm -hmm. if you have a couple of children, you might not be able to, to afford that. So mm -hmm. you're looking at migrating because you're looking at having a better opportunity, mm -hmm. but then you're losing some things in a sense of your, your sense of community, your family mm -hmm. origin. You might be living in an area where there's everybody that's your aunts and uncles and everyone grows yeah. up together, and then you're migrating here, and you might not have that, that connection yeah. with friends and family. So that disconnect... Um, becomes so as a obvious. profound yeah impact because that's how mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. we're used to is being around uh, a circle of people yeah. that you get your support and um I, I just think about my parents that emigrated here um from the uk when i was a, a small child i came here when i was seven the education system was different i remember yeah. having a breakfast program you know wearing a uniform and then coming here and it's like you can wear whatever you want um, you know, mm. we have feelings that you can discuss where your parents might have been able to plan and direct um, the direction that they want you to go. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then yeah. you have your community supporting, you know, the church. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you're going to your aunts and your uncles, you're going to your cousins, like you might have some extended friends, but they might be similar in terms of community and family structure. And mm -hmm. then I found later on when I was in high school and stuff like that, um, you know, the single parenthood, people being raised, um, that having young parents and just a different value system and the complications mm -hmm. of um, education here, which is a struggle and a challenge yeah, yeah. With, with racism and, and identity because they're not really referring to how we came here only during the shortest month of the year, which is February. So, yeah. you know, when you look at how we migrate, the trauma that hasn't been dealt with from slavery, and you know there's a whole big thing. Yeah. Um, lack of knowledge about who we are as people and our education. Yeah. Um, understanding what black love looks like when you're not living in yeah. a country that celebrates and, and, and supports um, black identity, black love. Yeah. Um, it's mostly seen in a hostile way yeah. and we get attacked for that. So mm -hmm. I think people, because of the fact that they're not able to express who they are, it manifests themselves in other ways with addictions and mm -hmm. family problems and interrelationship problems. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we had assimilation and, you know, there are a lot of my friends that are Pan-Africans that would say, you know, we were doing so much better when we had our own sense of community and we mm. were more insular in terms of how we dealt with things. And then now that we're moving into the more Eurocentric way of doing things, um, we're seeing that shift, we're seeing a disconnect, we're seeing mm -hmm. a lot of struggles because we want that acceptance and validation, but the mm. stigma. And it's undermining Absolutely. whatever strength does exist in some form mm -hmm. to 
you know, impose negativity on the identity and the cultural context. Mm. I mean, Martin Luther King, he always talks about the content of your character. But, you yeah. know, um, my thing is, you know, more the Malcolm X part where, like, yeah. who are you? Like, yeah. when, when we came over, I mean, we were given an ideology, but it wasn't uh, of, a, of a certain dream. But it, mm -hmm. it wasn't really incorporated in the structure of how we live our lives and how we run our families. We're mm -hmm. in direct conflict of that. It was downloaded or imposed. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's why there's a high concentration of us in, in CAS. There's a high concentration yeah. of us being criminalized. And now yeah. we're experiencing a lot of mental health. But then my friends that were in mental health during the 80s when it was a crack pandemic, and this is another pandemic that's never been resolved in our community community yeah, yeah and yeah. the mental health um issues that um came out of that era yeah um a lot of people um really felt like you know um they were just left to just fend for themselves and not get Absolutely. the support that the current people that are facing with addictions yeah are facing when these things were planted in our community it wasn't anything exactly. that we said, oh let's go and experiment because we do that's that's not our that's in our process of resolving issues and conflict. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's just the stress, which goes back to the trauma of yeah. having to live in a society that already stigmatized you and suppressed you. Then they yeah. want you to yeah. follow and, and, and be like them, but they're not even acknowledging our history and our mm -hmm. cultural traditions that reflect in the way that we heal ourselves. Kimberly, did you want to contribute in some way to um i i think i think i'm always mm, i think our experience for mental health experience here in um canada the u.s um generally speaking within the black community is we often see it as solely um impact or not solely, but greatly impacted by um, slavery and, and um, just the, the well, it's, it's one of the um, social workers, uh, her name is Joy DeGruy, mm -hmm. um, she speaks about it in terms of the post-traumatic slavery syndrome. And when you when you listen and and really grapple with um how we came here and how um how, what we've endured and what we've encountered without any break or um avenue for the same sort of um support and services that are provided to um people who are not of color mm -hmm. um you can kind of understand the uh the damage that's really done within the community and and you can actually even appreciate how we function and interrelate the way that we do and um i always hold it up to the fact that we we are an extraordinary people and um we've endured endured extraordinary things um but we we are in fact survivors, and so on this end of things, I think it's important to really bring out our strengths and the things that are working for us, um, and to build 
um, and rebuild us from there. Um, that's not to negate the, the trauma that we've experienced, but it's to actually look at the things that have enabled us to survive and thrive mm-hmm. in spite of all these things. Um, so that from that place, we can begin to build on who we are as a people and, and where we want to go moving forward. Mm-hmm. Most definitely, I would agree to that. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about a whole bunch of things when you were talking, and one thing that came to light uh, for me is um, just uh, being mindful of that, um, that people... Of what, per se? Well, just the fact that, you know, people are looking at their their different ways of reaching out and um, getting support and getting help, and I find that um, those walls of... Uh, are dismantling because now we're looking at representation and we're looking at diversity and we're seeing mm-hmm. people um, in these positions that we probably ha- hadn't seen before. Because I'm being honest, when I first started in the field in my journey, um, most of my um, uh, support people were always diverse and of color. So I've always been fortunate to have. Um, some really strong mentors that were Caribbean and African when I first started in the field. So I could see the differences in terms of how they approach the work. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just that when I grew up here, I was um, under the guise, and even my nieces and nephews that are first-generation Canadian, that, um, you know, everybody's supposed to be this multicultural melting pot and mm. we're all one. Well, that's the assimilation thing. Absolutely. Yes, and, you know, we're all in this together and women are hurting. Um, we're all hurting. And then I, I had to step back and I said, wait a minute, you know, when yeah. I started really realizing, you know, my truth to power and my yeah. identity, that, you know what, it's okay to be separate. And yeah. That, even though I'm working with you as an individual, I still need my color and I still need my history to be acknowledged. And I find that that's the pain and people are waking up now and they're Mm -hmm. realizing that, you know what? Um, I I want that to be acknowledged and that's Mm -hmm. an important part of. Would would you say that's the power of integration? Well, I don't know. There's a lot of people that want separation. They don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They just want to totally, you know, reject everything that's Eurocentric right now because it hasn't served us as people. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. now that we're taking back, you know, Sankofa, and we want to develop our own um, yeah. mental health practices based on our own principles that we learn yeah. from when we grew up and how we interact and how we yeah. do things. I do you not see though that there's a, the opportunity for the broader community comprised of a multitude of different to be enriched by that? Well, I kind of, I'm getting a little bit, I don't know what you're meaning by that because sometimes we don't want anyone peering in to what we're doing you know what i mean because we've had the, those yeah i know those it's been a threat of eurocentric models yeah. that we've learned from yeah. in order to get the education mm-hmm. and then you know when we're looking at works from our culture like you know kimberly mentioned Do- joy degree in the post-traumatic slave syndrome and you know other works 
that we're looking at, uh, people that are looking at our history and how we actually practiced holistically, then we're, then you don't need to have any other um, involvement because we have the knowledge and the experience to carry out um, and, and, what's and, and, good for our community. Right, and I'm not saying to to take away anything. I just mm-hmm. think that the broader community would be enriched by being informed and better aware mm-hmm. of what traditional cultural... I do agree with you in that the broader community, um, I think they need to be informed and aware, mm-hmm. but um, and involved insofar as they recognize that their involvement is not as the leader, no. but as the um, the one sitting at the seat and at the table yeah. to learn something. Okay, um, and. And insofar as they come to the table um, in, 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 in that suit, in the I'm here to learn something suit, yeah. then they're welcome. But if they come to the table um, with the notion that I need to help you do what it is no. that I think you need to do. That's absolutely that's- nothing that I'm proposing or an advocate for. Yeah, it's about yeah. collaboration and working together and supporting mm-hmm. and assisting mm-hmm. in the uniqueness of the individuality and the identities that we each have and mm-hmm. the power that that provides for, a, I think, a whole uh, a society overall that works better together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I agree with you 100%, but um, not at this juncture. <laughs> uh, no, that's an ideal. I, yeah. I mean, the reality is that I even have to say we have to close our conversation now. There's so much more we could talk about. You know I put many more questions there, and we didn't even get through them. I think the richness of the opportunity of this conversation that it can present Mm -hmm. is untapped. And I really want to go there further, so to have the two of you return, that would be a great opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. Um, Let me just clear up one thing. Um, It was Oliver Lejeune. He was the first um, captive from Madagascar that was taken from uh, his home and um, traveled across the world. Uh, so, you know, look at that, seven years old. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to thank the two of you, mm-hmm. Kimberly and Alethea, for helping to inform. Absolutely. Step by step. And let's just build the, sta- uh, the staircase, build the scaffolding. Absolutely. That's right. Let this be the start. I'm okay. Yeah. Thank you very much, well, and I appreciate it, and we'll speak soon. Thank you. You've been Excellent. listening to Mediation Station on CHHA 1610 AM.